Welcome back to What Would Mozart Do? Today, I am talking to translator and baritone George Roberts, who is currently doing a postgraduate degree in voice at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. In our chat, George talks about the rhythm and melody inherent in the written word, the fascinating journey of translating a text from German or Italian to English, and how his work in the publishing industry and his love of singing influence each other daily. Hello, George. How are you? Hi, Nico. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of What Would Mozart Do? Um, could I ask you to just um, start off by introducing yourself to the listeners? Thank you very much for having me. Um, so my name is George Robarts. Um, I am currently in my first year studying at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama um, on the vocal performance course. So I'm going to be doing uh, a master's there um, and my ambition after that is to go into opera and, and leader singing. Um, so before this, I I have been working in in book publishing for the last three years. I did I did a languages degree for my, for my undergrad. I studied German and Italian um, at Oxford and finished that in 2017. So since then, um, I've been doing a mixture of things in the book world. Um, I have been working as a translator um, from both German and Italian. And so I uh, published, uh, I had my first book, book translation published about this time last year. It was a very sweet book called The Wisdom of Old Dogs, uh, a nonfiction book about everything that old dogs can teach us about life, love and friendship. Um, and that's, uh, I, I did that alongside working full time in a, uh, in a publishing house as a junior editor. So I was mainly working on uh, commercial nonfiction there. So that could that, that was a lot of uh, real life stories, some uh, true crime, um, and then sort of more lighthearted books about pets and vets. Um, oh. So, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of what's what's got me up to this point. Okay, well, I mean, there there are so many parallels that I can already think of that we can draw on of um, if we were to. T- talk about transferable skills. Um, But I want to first ask, how did you end up studying languages? What is it that drew you to language after school? I think, I mean, in in a way, I've been very lucky to end up with German and Italian because they're such great languages for singing. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're really the the opera languages and I I love singing German leader. it wasn't a calculated decision, particularly. They were they were just. I I, I got the opportunity to start um, learning uh, German and Italian in my teens, and uh, took that up. And they were the lessons that I I just looked forward to most every, every week. It was as simple as that, really. Um, and and I think there was something about German and Italian specifically that, that attracted me just because of the, the, the sounds. I, I think the, the vowel sounds of German are so unusual to the English ear. Um, and, and I think because I had, because I had first come across German in, in a musical context when, when sort of singing German songs, um, when I was younger, I, I, I really 
loved the the musicality of the language. So so I so I guess that that was was what drew me in. What always strikes me about foreign languages or languages that one doesn't necessarily speak oneself, um, especially in those those early stages of getting into the language, learning it, it's really an exploration of how stories are told and how people communicate in a different way, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and I, I think there's a real difference in, in how, how you can express yourself in, in, in one language from another. You know, that there, are, there are limitations and there are also freedoms. And, mm-hmm. and the great thing about German, I think, is, is the, the concision of the language, yes. um, uh, which, which is so, it has such beauty to it, the way you can sort of meld words together to, to create new sort of untranslatable ideas but 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 of course the flip side is is that untranslatability and it's it's incredibly frustrating sometimes when you're working as a translator but particularly once you get into things like poetry translation mm-hmm. um german is so concise within a line of poetry um that, that as, as soon as you start trying to get all the ideas contained within a sentence into lines of English verse, you end up with far too many words, far too many syllables. You always sort of lose something when you're coming into English. And that's, and that's I guess, part of the problem, but also part of the joy of exploring the differences between, between languages and cultures. So, so what is your process then, if you had to translate a German text to English? Which are the darlings that you have to kill and which are the darlings that you keep? Do you have a certain process that you go through or is every uh, poem or text different in that sense for you? I think it really depends on what type of text you're approaching. So if I am translating something that is designed just to be a a quick and enjoyable read Mm -hmm. that's just got a really good story that's just going to hook you in and, 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 and you can just fly with it. Then, then the main thing is just to get the the kind of surface level meaning of the words there, and 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 you know you, you can end up with an English translation that is far longer than the German, just because you want to pack in everything that has been that has been said. Um, so, as an example, I was I was working on a memoir of a German DJ over the summer, oh, wow. um, and that was you know uh, the, the the extract that I was working on for the for the German publisher was uh, about his early life it was very fast paced there were there were a lot of details about this this sort of tough and gritty upbringing he'd had so there the focus was just just prioritizing getting all, all the information into the english whereas if i'm working on something that that is more towards that that's more lyrical then then i think i think you need to focus more on on, on the rhythm of the language, um, and that and that goes for for prose as well as poetry. I think I think prose has a real rhythm to it when you're reading it. So that's that's definitely something that I try to bring into to more literary work, and, and I guess sort of having having something of a music, musical ear hopefully helps that. Absolutely, yeah. I I always think about when writing this. You speak about the rhythm. Um, but it's really a rhythm and then sort of a, a melody that the the vowels and the consonants and the combinations of them can bring into prose from one sentence to the next, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. 
I suppose it's highlighted in poetry, but in prose, it's not something that really need to fall by the wayside. It can actually enhance a text much more. And that certainly matters um, to the to the publishing industry now when mm-hmm. so many books have have audiobooks as counterparts. I think that that's something that that you really need to consider when producing a translation um, is you know w- what format are people going to receive this material in because often it's not just people reading it. Yes. Um, and, and how it how it sounds can be really really crucial in how how the book then performs and and how how many people end up reading it in one form or another. And I guess you work at a very um, tight schedule with the more sort of commercial books. Absolutely, yeah, they they tend to be on a on a uh, tight schedule where where you you just need to turn something around within within weeks or months, especially if it's an editing job. Um, it'll, it'll be a couple of weeks to sweep through a whole book and just, you know, correct it, make it more readable, and that's that. Gosh. And, of course, then the punctuation and all those, those uh, details that you have to pay attention to as well, you know, because it, it changes from one language to another. I suppose um, Germany is famous for its seemingly never-ending sentences, whereas in English, we tend to have the sentences much shorter and sort of more packed in. Yeah, that's absolutely always a consideration. Um, And I think it's one of the thorny questions about translation. What what are you actually trying to do? Are you trying to, I mean, mean, you're trying to replicate the original text, but what does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean producing a text that looks on the page like the original. So mm-hmm. the sentences might not, it, it, it might work better in English with shorter sentences, with paragraph breaks in different, in different places. And to me, I think that's a, that's, those are really important decisions to make because I think what, what you're trying to do is not to, to replicate the, the the look of the original, but to replicate the effect that the original has on the reader. Mm-hmm. And as readers of English books, we're used to completely different conventions of of what a book looks like and feels like, and uh, you know, e- even even what a physical book looks like. You know, we have we have different formats of books in England. Uh, it'll there'll be different sizes, and and the margins will be different sizes from from. In Germany or France or Italy, there are the, the the way we receive these books is totally different. So, so you're always looking at what effect the words have on the readers. Yeah. So the storytelling goes much farther than just from one word to the next. It's yeah. how it's how it's put together in the language, um, in the original language, then into translation, and also the visual aspect i guess um on the page and also the um if you if you're reading a um real paper book the tactile aspect of it of the flow of a page turn etc are you involved in that at all or more no, just the setting of the text in terms of the the flow of one page to the next that that wouldn't be my job that would be something that's done at a later stage Mm-hmm. um by by the typesetter but uh yeah i think i think 
you really have to consider the the flow of the of the entire book in order to translate successfully you're you're always looking beyond just the words on the page i think to an extent you have to consider sort of what what the intention behind them but behind those words is um mm-hmm. and you have to con- uh, you have to consider what the what the effect on the reader of those words will be and and the tricky thing is that the effects of those words on one reader will be completely different from the effect of those words on another reader. And as a translator, you will always have your own sort of interpretative biases when you're reading something. There's a, there's a wonderful Angela Carter quote about when you read a book, you're always bringing to it every book that you've ever read before that. And you're bringing all of your experience to the world, to that book. And you, you read it in your own terms. So as a translator, I think you, you have to try and keep as many of those interpretative possibilities open um, for as many readers as possible, mm-hmm. which is a really tricky thing because so many words can mean so many different things. You know, one, one word in English can have 10 different meanings depending on the context. And in, in German, that those those could be ten different words, or or there could be one word for for ten different words in English, and, and, and you're always having to sort of juggle between those two sides of the same coin to to decide what interpretation works best for you as a translator and and, and sort of fits with your your overall vision of the book. Mm-hmm. But I think you also have to try and leave open as many interpretations as possible for readers, so that you're not sort of imposing your own reading of it too much on the book because after all your your job is essentially to to be invisible as a translator yes of course or at least and, to make the process of translation invisible yeah and so do you um this this might sound strange but do you translate it for a british readership or a broader english readership i'm thinking of certain words that have slightly different meanings, whether you're saying it on this side or that side of the Atlantic, for instance. Yeah, I, I would usually translate into British English because that because that's what I'm familiar with and because that's what, you know, I, I know exactly what I mean when I'm when I'm writing in British English and, and you know, if I were trying to do it in American English, I I might slip up somewhere i don't i don't know but that's generally a decision that that publishers can can take it sort of it it essentially depends on what the nature of the work is so if i were doing a job for an american publisher i would certainly write it in american english and do all the research i could to ensure (laughs) i got that right yeah Um, but if i so so a lot of the translation work that i that i do just from from week to week is for for German and Italian publishers. So when they want to pitch a, a book to an English an English language publisher, they will produce a sample of that book of about 10 pages long, which someone like me will translate for them. And then they will send that out to all of their English speaking contacts. So for those jobs, I'm all, you know, I've, I've always got an English speaking market beyond the UK in mind. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I would I would tend to to write in British English because that's what comes naturally to me. Yeah, as always, go back to what you know, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, how did all of this, because I mean, the world of the word and the written word and translation and language, etc., is so fascinating. How did you end up in the music world? So music was always something that's been part of my life in, in some way or another and singing especially. Um, I, I started singing when I, was, when I was very small, just in the village where I grew up. Uh, my mum used to organise music groups for, for toddlers when, I, when, when we were you know, two or three years old. She'd, she'd have all the, all the local toddlers uh, and their mums sitting in a room in our house, singing nursery rhymes off the back of cereal boxes and banging tambourines and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> And and she also she also got together a, a village choir um, about three times a year at Christmas, Easter, and Harvest to sing some some hymns in four part harmony. And and that that was that those were my first musical experiences really. And and I and then I took up the cello and piano when I was at school. And once my voice broke, I think that was that was when I really started getting into to singing as a as a solo. Venture. I mean, I'd, I'd sung in school choirs before that, but yeah, that, uh, that that was when I around fourteen or fifteen was when I really discovered my love of art song, of English song, and, and German leader in particular. Right, and then you uh, went to university for languages, and yes. what was what was your decision process of then going into music? Also, did you do your languages degree as something to support your music beyond the, the degree so that you have something to support your, your artistic work? Or is it something that's just sort of naturally flowed from one to the other? I think, I think music has always been a sort of constant thing in the in in the background I mean it's always sort of been in the foreground really but it's it's always been a big extracurricular thing which has taken up as much of my time as possible outside of of academic work really you know I I, I studied languages because I really wanted to study languages you know I, mm -hmm. I, I loved I was a massive grammar nerd well still am um, <laughs> and, and just really, really enjoyed getting into the study of linguistics and, and discovering German and Italian literature. So, so yeah, that was certainly not just a means to an end. Um, but, but music was was certainly something that I that that I always had as essentially the, the long term plan. I guess I I I, I wanted to be an, an actor when I was very little, and and once I discovered. Uh, my love of singing in my teens, I think it sort of became the natural development of that of that ambition to uh, to, to get into student opera when I when I was uh, an undergrad and and just to you know keep organizing performances recitals of my own whenever I could so that so while I was working my publishing job over the last three years or so I'd, I'd be organizing um, solo recitals. Mm -hmm. at the weekends as often as I could. Singing's always been part of the long-term plan. Fantastic. Well, now coming back to your, your studying and your work in languages, I mean, you were talking when you were mentioning earlier about translation and getting the rhythm right and getting the, the most suitable 
uh, flow of the lines when you translate from German into English, for instance. There must be a parallel for you between doing that and phrasing when you're singing in any language. Certainly. I think, I think in many ways the decisions that I make as a translator and as a singer are based on similar foundations in a sense. You know, they're, they're, they're both fundamentally processes of, of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, you're, you, you know, whether, whether you're translating a book or singing a song, you're, you're, you're given some source material to, to work with, which is in its current state inaccessible to the audience you want to present it to. You know, an English language audience can't read a book in German, and it can't hear a music hear music from looking at a piece of paper. And and so so you have to make so many decisions in in terms of how you interpret that source material and, and how you want to 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 present it to to that that new audience that that might not have had any chance to to hear it before. I guess I guess the difference is that with singing, often I often I am singing songs that, pe- that people will know already and, and will have heard before. I guess the question then is, is how much do I want to put my own stamp on it? And, and how much, you know, how much license do you, do you take with the material given to you? Um, I, I always think of a, an exercise that I was given in a, in a translation class in my first year as an undergraduate. We were given a, a, a quite simple descriptive passage from a 19th century novel, just about some people meeting in a square. And the teacher said to us, okay, I'm I'm going to divide you up into three pairs. Group one, you're going to translate this text as a 1950s police report. Mm -hmm. Group two, you're going to translate this as an extract from a Jane Austen novel. And group three, you're going to translate this as a contemporary Daily Mail article. And I was in group three and had the absolute time of my life translating it as a Daily Mail article. You know, we, we, we <laughs> pulled all the stops out. And, and of course, we ended up with three completely different texts. Mm-hmm. But they, they were all, in their own ways, perfectly legitimate renderings of, of the same text. And I just think it's fascinating how many different interpretations you can, you can get from the same fundamentally the same source material and 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 that that to me is is the same with singing you know that's that's the joy of going to see two different singers sing the same piece mm-hmm. and and come away with two completely different but perfectly legitimate renderings of the same material and that that sort of highlights for me the the sense that we're always working on so hard is by making our interpretation as clear or as believable as possible. And I believe it's, it's probably because we have to believe it ourselves, right? Absolutely. I think, I think you have to have some form of personal investment in, in, in what you are interpreting and in how, and in, in how you're doing it. I mm-hmm. guess what's, what's more difficult in a sense about doing that in singing is the fact that it's live performance and what the audience sees from what you do could be just 
totally different from from what you're trying to put across <laughs> and you know certainly if if they have the text in front of them in 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 a program they they might be reading that and and getting something completely different out of what what you've got out of it when you've read it and 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 uh, learned it and and presented it to that audience i suppose there will there, there will often be translations in in concert programs as well so um so these two things sort of go together in many many concert contexts and do you think that you know i i see a parallel between what you said earlier the the translator being invisible and therefore you as an interpreter as a singer trying to be invisible um but of course you can't be because you're standing right in front of your audience but it's sort of coming back to the idea also of when we read something we we come with the the history of everything we've read before so it's similar to your audience then that whatever your intentions are that you want to bring across they would each audience member would bring their own interpretive baggage if you like yeah i think i think that's that's one of the really interesting things about about live performance which i've sort of been wrestling with a bit in my in my first term of of studying singing full time i think i think it's it's fascinating how you know how strong an interpretation you have to have in order to pull off a convincing performance but and, and you know you, you you have to do so much more than than you think you're doing um in terms of gesture and expression in order to put across what you want to put across but if you try too hard to sort of di- dictate terms to the audience i guess in in a sense that it's kind of a fool's game because they could well have come to this performance with with their own preconceptions of what that character is like what what the na- what the what the nature of a certain song is and you know there's there's always a risk that you're either pulling them too far in the other direction or that you just won't quite sort of put, put across what you what you want to but but yeah it's a, it's a it's a really interesting problem to come up against and and one that's, that that is hopefully you know productive in performance rather than sort of constraining yeah and and i guess it's the more you do it the more you you find ways of dealing with that and knowing what what worked before and what didn't but i suppose it's also a case of the same thing won't always work with yeah. different songs <laughs> yeah i think so much depends on who you, who you're singing to and and this is this is again something that 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 ties back into to the work I've done with books more on the editorial side you know when 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 we were working on uh when when I was uh working in a in the publishing house the question we always had to ask when we were taking on a new book is who's going to buy it and you you always have to have your your readership in mind or your your live audience in mind because performing to a bunch of fellow students at music college is completely different from performing to a village church full of full of local over 60s. Mm-hmm. And they they they're both hugely hugely enjoyable experiences but you have to produce the right kind of music for for each of those scenarios and you have to 
do it in, in a way that is, you, you have to present it in a way, a way that's going to get your audience on side. Now, talking about performances, um, I'm curious to know about your, your programming, the way that you put together concert programs. Have you ever done a program where um, it's a few poems, but various different settings of the same poem? or the same story, but in different languages. What's your usual practice, as it were, when you put together a, a program, a recital program? I don't think I ever have done a uh, program based on, on the same, same characters or the same poems, but I think that would be a, a really interesting exercise. And, and, and I, I have certainly wondered about uh, putting the, for example, the Ravel and Eber Don Quixote settings mm-hmm. uh, in, in the same same program. My process is is generally first of all to to look at who I'm singing to and and what what sort of thing they'll they'll want to hear. So with the the recitals I've I've done in the last few years, I've I've generally put quite a lot of English song in there because partially because that's what I really love singing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because, because that's something that people who aren't necessarily, you know, regulars at the Wigmore Hall, but, but would like to turn up to a, an afternoon of music at a church on a Sunday afternoon will like to hear, you know, that there, there, there might be some familiar poems in there. And, and I think it's important if you have, uh, if you're singing to an audience of, people who, who aren't regulars at, at the opera or at um, sort of larger, larger scale professional concerts, I think it's important to have plenty of material in, in English because the barrier with opera and song, I think, is, is more of a language barrier than a stylistic barrier. And then alongside that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll generally try and weave in some, some more some perhaps more challenging or slightly more experimental material. I, I, I really enjoy singing contemporary songs, so I so I, I I like to try and integrate that into programs in sometimes surprising combinations. I guess I, I, I did a recital last year where 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 I had I think it was Beethoven, Ebert, and Cecilia McDowell. You know, it was it was it was a big. Uh, range of of periods and and styles. I, I think I always try to have some material that's familiar or or has an air of familiar uh, familiarity about it. But but something that I, I I really enjoy presenting audiences with something that they haven't heard before, and and so that's what I try to do. Yeah. So it's a it's both an opportunity to make them comfortable, but also to broaden their horizons. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think. The, the way of broadening people's horizons that, that is often most effective is by giving them something that they're comfortable with first mm-hmm. um, and, and really sort of in, inviting them into to, to what you want to share with them. And then, and, and then there's, there's more of a sense of trust between an audience and a performer, I think, if, if uh, something more familiar has been, has been shared first. Yeah, and then then they're more open to to having a, a deeper conversation. Yeah, I think, and again, I think this is this is like with with books. You know, when when you read a book that really 
transforms you and changes how you think about the world, that's usually because there's been a really good story and really strong characters to carry you through that book. It won't generally be a book where you feel like the author is telling you what to think. It, it, it'll be a book where, where the author has asked questions of you, but also really drawn you into to a world that you feel comfortable in. Right. Now, you started your, your full-time studies in music relatively recently. You're still in your first year of postgrad. But I did I hear correctly that you are currently still doing some translation work as well? Yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious to know how has your more focused work on music, how has that influenced your translation work? Not only in the um, the schedule being busier, but um, have you seen perhaps that you have changed slightly the way that you would translate something or approach a text? One of the interesting things this term has been doing my first co-translation project where I was paired up with, uh, with another translator to translate uh, uh, an extract from a book. And I think what really struck me is, is how, how much I focus on sound and rhythm and and individual word choices just because of the way that they that that they sort of feel in the context of a sentence mm-hmm. um whereas the other translator was was much more concerned with digging right down into into the you know all, all the di- all the different uh meanings that 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 certain words or sentences could could have um they 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 did a a lot of a lot of uh background research into sort of every thread of of meaning that could come from from each sentence which which is hugely important but i i i certainly found that 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 my focus is often really on on just refining what you get on the on on the sort of final final page because ultimately you know, you, you, there, there, there are. There's a lot of information behind anything that's 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 written, but you need to really focus on how that that information is is transmitted to the reader right at the end. And and and, and I think that that rhythm and flow are things that 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 are priorities for me because they, I guess, have have come from my love of music. Yeah, I suppose. And you mentioned that this was the first co-edit work that you've done. Now you've you've of course more than only just from the beginning of this academic year, you've done so much collaborative work as a singer with a pianist. How was it? I mean, c- can you draw any parallel perhaps between working on a program where? you and the pianist had a different way of working. Was that perhaps something that helped you dealing with this situation in the co-edit better, do you think? I think it's, it definitely helped. I generally find it easier to deal with differences of, of opinion in sort of interpretative terms 
uh, in music. Uh, but but I guess that's that's been because I've always been rehearsing with a pianist live in the same room, um, and and there's there's always opportunity to try things out and and you know just decide what you what you like and then and then if you're doing several performances of the same thing you know you can always decide after the first performance actually that didn't work that didn't work quite so well let's try the other way mm-hmm. um whereas i guess with translation you end you you end up with one final product that that once you press send is fixed unless you know unless your editor hates it and changes it completely um but yes i think i think a large part of the of the, the the sort of complexity of of the co-translation process recently, I, I think, was just down to the fact that we were doing it over Zoom. Right. Yeah, and so there was not necessarily as much a flow for you. Yeah, I think it's I think it's harder to uh, to to just throw ideas around and. And and to you know write write things out on the page and 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 just compare how they are if if you're not there with someone in person if you're you know we we were both writing into one Google document and so you end up with with one sort of authentic version of of what you produce so far and and that I think then becomes harder to sync with if you're sort of pulling in slightly different directions. But you know, it was it was still a, a fascinating process and, and really interesting to see how how someone else approached the same the same text in, in in a completely different way. Yeah, it sounds like the translation project that you were given right at the beginning of your studies the different um, groups, but it was one of the other people from the other two groups that came to join yours <laughs> yeah. you had to make it work <laughs> yeah absolutely and we ended up with something that we were both very happy with but yeah it takes it takes time yeah and i and i guess sometimes that actually brings about something that is perhaps even better than either of you would have done just on your own because you had the other point of view but you also had to uh, come to a compromise and communicate about what you want to put down on the page. Definitely. Um, and this, this particular text was very heavy on data. Um, it, it was about a survey that had been done and, and how it was constructed and why it might not be entirely reliable, you know, fascinating and thrilling stuff. Um, but the, uh, <laughs> The, the advantage of of having the other translator there was that they had done a lot of of data analysis work professionally, mm-hmm. whereas I haven't done any. So having them to go through the text and and say, well, you know, uh, if for met order we should write methodology, not method, because that's the word you use for for data analysis. Yes. That's that's so useful to have someone there with that expertise, but. Um, you know that's that, but that wasn't to say that I had nothing to offer on that front. Because also, once you start going into technical language, this you know this was a book that's written for a general readership. So you 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 needed the you know a layman's eye basically to to read this and make sure that it that it still made sense even with lots of technical language in there. So so there were times when I when I. I had to point out that something had got too technical to the point of not really being understandable at first reading. Yeah. But both perspectives are really, really useful there. 
It sounds to me that the process, in this instance at least, is similar to learning a piece, um, whether it's a role or an aria or a song or whatever, but learning it um, and the first time not really being that enamored with it. And then over time, the harder you work on it, the more it gets into your into your being and that ending up being the favorite on the program that you perform. Yeah. And that's, and that's a process that I've been through a lot of times and it's, and it's, it's a wonderful one. Yeah. It's, it's a great feeling when you, when you then walk off stage, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Whether it is clicking send because the document's done or walking off um, the concert stage. It's, it's really for myself, I've, I found it as a real feeling of, of achievement and fulfillment. Certainly. Yeah. I, and that's, that's exactly how I feel as well. I mean, and, and, you know, the, the, the feeling I got last year when, when, when the first book I translated arrived in the post was just absolutely unmatchable. It was, yeah. That's wonderful. So, and that is about the wisdom of dogs, right? The wisdom of old dogs. Yes. So to round off our conversation, is there any bit of wisdom that you wanted to share that, that stuck out for you from the book that you, that you live your linguistic and musical life by? Oh, it's such a sweet book. I think most of it was, was just about living in the moment and not worrying about what's around the corner. Um, and yeah, just enjoying every second like a dog does. And <laughs> You know, it's it, it's it's not a difficult read, but it's a lovely Christmas present. Oh uh, well, <laughs> can can one get it on Amazon? One can get it on Amazon, or from or from your local independent bookshops, hopefully. Yes, <laughs> but whilst we can't go to the local independent bookshops, yeah. I think for this Christmas we we should try and get people to to buy some on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Well, George, thank you so much for this very interesting chat. I can I can go on forever. Thank you so much for having me. You're you're more than welcome. It's absolutely been a pleasure. So I look forward to reading some of your future translations and I wish you all the best for your future studies in singing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can find other episodes on your podcast provider. Feel free to get in touch with me via Instagram at whatwouldmozartdo, follow me on Twitter or email info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.